Welcome to the Dr. Y podcast, a podcast about a variety of current scientific health and wellness topics. Today's episode is a continuation of the discussion between Dr. Y and a patient about the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode features a deeper examination of antibody testing and current management of our healthcare system. Please enjoy and make sure to share and subscribe to our channel. Dr. Y, today is May 2nd, 2020. Last time we spoke, you had mentioned that antibody testing deserves a podcast on its own. But I wanted to start by asking you what you think we should be addressing at this point in this crisis. What's top of mind for you? Actually, I have to say that antibody testing is right on top of my mind. And here's why. The lab I'm using in California, which I use uh, almost exclusively for all of my patients, and they are a local California lab, not a family, but kind of a midsize, waiting to be gobbled by Quest or LabCorp or somebody like that. They introduced in antibody testing uh, starting Monday. So immediately I tested myself and I tested at this point a dozen patients. Half of the tests are back now. By the way, turnaround was three days. And uh, my test is negative. And so is every other patient, including a patient who actually came from Italy on a day when they instituted a lockdown in Milan after spending a week there at the convention, shopping and walking around, dining in restaurants. And he got sick five days later when he came to America. His seven people who worked with him, his employees went with him, and he tested negative. So that surprised me. Of course, it's very possible that he did not have COVID-19. He probably might have had another viral infection, but he did get a little ill for a couple of days. He's surprised as well. He is saying, although, that all of his employees, none of them, to be accurate, presented with any symptoms. I missed a day of work, if anything. And the bulb went up on my head, a question bulb, I would say, asking, is this test accurate? Of course, I already answered it in my podcast that it is not accurate. It's not accurate enough to make it break make it or break it of a decision point but uh, what i did this morning after getting a negative test yesterday i gave blood again and i sent it at this point to one to quest and one to LabCorp because i want to see if there is a match they all use different homegrown tests which are not approved by fda and there is a disclosure you know also the our lab markets and i actually can order immunoglobulin g this is something which reflects a longer-term immunity. But also, I was very interested by the fact that they offer immunoglobulin A, because immunoglobulin A is a secretory immunoglobulin which presents itself on the surfaces of the GI tract and uh, respiratory tract. And uh, reports came back, immunoglobulin G, they, uh, they did measure, and none of the patients got immunoglobulin A results, and they say there was a technical error and that's why test was not performed <laughs> so there is something obviously probably very raw right now so they're not getting what they expect the results they're probably still waiting and uh, that was a big disappointment for me but nobody actually offers immunoglobulin a and i did not find immunoglobulin m test available at any of the major labs including my clinic lab so once i get results for these two tests sent to Quest and LabCorp, I will be looking at them, comparing, and we'll obviously update you. But my 
interest. I would not even say that it is a concern because I know for myself and for other patients, this is immaterial. If we test it positive, test is negative. But my concern, which been confirmed now, in my opinion, that tests are so bad that it's laughable if anybody is talking about testing and that is a prerequisite for opening anything. Understood. I do have another related question, which is that how do we then send people back to work if we don't have that certainty? Thank you. We already addressed it once, at least, before the expiration of the first month of a lockdown since Trump announced on March 13th. So I was saying in that podcast that I expect, and I would, I did not expect actually, but I would open the country, just open, like pull a switch. You asked about certainty. As far as I know, Americans feel certainty only about two things, death and taxes. This is not a matter of life and death, although people do die from a disease, but so they're dying from many other diseases. And we're absolutely uncertain at this point how many people actually died from SARS virus itself. All we know is a piling death toll, which keeps growing and basically trying to prove the point that those guys were right and they saved hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. I am not really buying this. This is a talk for school children. None of the physicians I know from multiple countries takes this seriously at all. Therefore, answering your question, there is no prerequisite for opening. There was not none for closing to begin with, but now there is none for opening. It is very clear that number of new cases is dropping, and there will be, of course, a uptick of the infections once we start mingling together. But this is expected. This is in epidemiology and infectious disease 101. We just need to open. There seems to be a number of opinions out there. One of them, the school of thought is, if you did not allow herd immunity to take place with a similar model to Sweden's, then it's going to be very difficult to open up and not have a real spike in deaths and infections and so on. Do you see that? Maybe even more so in areas that did not allow the disease to infect as many people from you know their population and stopped it with early lockdowns and so on? Or do you not foresee that? There will be a bump without any doubt, and the bump will be higher or bigger in areas which had the strictest lockdown. But I would like to go back to your words about exponential growth, and this is something that we've heard multiple times on the TV. The interview you mentioned with Nobel Prize laureate Professor Levin, he states very clearly that at no point he saw exponential growth in the cases starting with first outbreak in China. There was up and down growth, but there was never doubling or quadrupling every three days. The number of cases increased largely and primarily because of introduction of testing, not because suddenly more people got sick in the in the last several months or weeks. Therefore, I would not worry about this. we already proven that there is capacity in most locations around the United States. The locations which were overcrowded or even overcrowded today were primarily having difficulties because of inappropriate hospitalizations 
and the fact that patients from all over a particular area, borough in New York, were sent to one or two hospitals with other hospitals staying empty. We've heard about Javits Center, we saw the ship departing a couple of days ago, which treated, they don't even say how many patients they treated. And I think Javits Center treated 1,000 patients, and there were 3,500 beds there. So New York by itself already proven that there is a huge excess capacity, even if they wouldn't use military hospitals, military field hospitals, which were opened and still stay open at a huge expense. Back to the original question, which is, what do you think the dialogue should be about at this point as it relates to COVID-19? Do we have, for example, do we have enough data on COVID-19 in order to make decisions with a certain level of comfort for the public. Today, I believe we all have that fear in the public because of what we're being told and the stories we're seeing. Do we have enough data out there to indicate that the assumptions that, for instance, Sweden has made are accurate? Or is Sweden becoming a poor example of how this crisis should have been handled. So can you talk to that? I know we revisit Sweden almost every podcast, but it's a moving target. And as things evolve, I'd love to see, or I'd love to hear your opinion on it. I think Sweden did the right thing by not instituting strict lockdowns and um, mostly relying on the, the citizens who in turn trust their government. As you know, in the United States and many other countries, there is little or no trust in the government, which also comes from politicians who say that we cannot trust the government. So we get really confusing messages from one standpoint that tell us you have to lock down, you have to obey these measures. From another standpoint, they themselves criticize each other and trying to prove that we cannot trust the government, quote unquote. I think Sweden, as of today, has approximately 2,600 deaths with a population of approximately 10 million. And there was an interesting comparison just yesterday with Michigan, which has one of the strictest lockdown policies. And Michigan has approximately 4,000 deaths. So two approximately the same regions. And actually in Michigan, as we know, there are lots of people of Scandinavian descent who are also quite disciplined, uh, quite different from many other areas of the country, but they have 30% more deaths. This entirely discredits lockdown strategy. And returning to your first question, when you ask what's bothering me the most, and I will be very confident to say that this is bothering physicians, every physician I know, that we are not treating patients who need attention, who need treatment now with other diseases. We really developed a tunnel vision, and that tunnel vision, we are short. We cannot look left and right. We just run as a country in one direction. While people fall off the back of our truck or, or our carriage, horse carriage, a wagon, right? Out of our wagon, left and right and back, and we still move forward without even turning around and looking who fell off. The number of deaths, excess deaths from suicide will double this year because of unemployment. Each day, there are dozens to several hundred of cases, depending on the type of cancer, which has not been diagnosed. You multiply it by a number of days lost five days a week and you will get thousands and thousands of people who did not get diagnosed it doesn't mean they will never get diagnosed eventually most of them will but the time given for a tumor to grow 
will definitely have a huge payback for patients and for the society as a whole. Understood. With all of that, I think there absolutely, though, undeniably, there was a surge in hospitalizations in New York. Some of the hospitals in New York were overwhelmed. And that doesn't necessarily happen during a flu season, even when it's a bad flu season. I know that doctors have said in the past that, yes, it does get quite busy, but the number of deaths, the the things that were happening in hospitals, even the healthcare workers becoming depressed because of seeing all of this. How do we explain that? What is the difference? My opinion that this situation is largely a result of mismanagement of the healthcare resources. As I mentioned, there were hospitals designated as COVID hospitals and patients from large portals will be all brought to that hospital until it fills to capacity and then they will fill the next one. That's why Javits Center never got filled because it was not dedicated as a place where everybody should be taken. That of course is compounded by the fact that there are no infectious disease hospitals in the United States as a matter of policy. Those were closed many years ago. The last one I think more than 20 years ago because we didn't need it. Therefore, the resources of infectious disease doctors and other resources needed to combat infections are not there or they are widely distributed while patients congregate to one particular location. But my understanding of, of this situation is that we have connected vessels and we put everything in one vessel and do not let to escape that into the next one, which is staying empty. We basically close the switch there. So we have overflow in one and empty another. The hospitals I talked to where physicians I know very well work stay empty. At most, they have one third of the beds available. But in- not in New York, right? Not every hospital in New York uh, got overflowed. Definitely not. We just mentioned the Javits Center. It is a hospital, the hospital ship and uh, university hospitals and so on. They did get busy, but I disagree with the statement that we never saw it before. The difference between a regular epidemic where nobody is paying attention and everybody goes to work sneezing and coughing is that those cases are distributed more evenly because there is no dedicated flu hospital. There is no dedicated flu board at the hospital or floor and therefore most patients who need care they go to their doctor get a prescription stay at home or continue going to work for that matter and those who do need hospitalization they are directed by their primary care physicians without accounting that this place or that place is better or dedicated to a particular disease so we have essentially concentration of this flows instead of distributing them we put everybody in that tunnel and trying to push them through which of course creates uh, lots of troubles if we rewind time by approximately three months and i think we already discussed it before the emergency room were overcrowding and the wait to see a physician at the end of the day late afternoon starting at five o'clock which all people without insurance come and seek care for whatever ailment they have, the way to see a doctor is three to four hours. Then after triage nurse, actually, not a doctor, sees the patient, they have to wait another hour and two hours before they get a bed in emergency room. And then if they need to be transferred to the floor, it was not unusual, it was a matter of routine that you have to work with a so-called bed board, which assigns beds in the hospital, almost bribe the nurse who is managing it, 
Of course, we're not bribing them, but you have to be really nice talking to them and get the most respected physicians involved to get a bed. And it was not unusual. It was a matter of routine that patient is in emergency room for 24 hours just to get a bed. If the same patient would need an ICU a day or two later, there will be a wait again. ICUs were always busy. I never saw an ICU without patients. The typical wait at the large university hospital would be at the very least six hours and frequently 12 hours and more. And actually, when I had patients who needed, for instance, intubation, that was commonly done in their regular room when there is a special crash team coming over, intubating them, bringing a portable ventilator and waiting for a bed and ICU to open. Let me transition to asking about the topic of diet. We continue to hear so much about this lately. I want to see if there's legitimacy to some of these arguments. And I'm certain there are a lot of arguments that maybe are not necessarily well-founded. But I would love to hear your thoughts on, on that. We hear a lot about it in the different media and so on about diet and the U.S. diet in particular. I'd just love to hear your perspective. Do you mean the diet in general as diet not related to this particular situation with COVID? Is that your question? I think the question is multifaceted when it relates to diet. Uh, you had compared Sweden to Michigan, very similar size population, Michigan having more deaths than Sweden to date. Does that have anything to do with diet? Understood. Diet definitely is a huge contributor or influencer on various health conditions. In particular, diet, or more accurately, overloading with calories, leads to obesity, especially when it is not combined with a rigorous active lifestyle. If one is Michael Phelps, he can eat and he should eat 12,000 calories a day to compete. Well, if you and I will eat 12,000, we'll quickly grow to three, four hundred pounds and we'll need a, a surgery to correct that. Therefore, again, I would not single any particular diet. I will single overconsumption of calories and low activity of widespread epidemic obesity in some regions of the United States. More than 50% of people are overweight and on average 30% are morbidly obese. And that is not happening in a vacuum. It is not just a person gained 20, 30, 50, 100 pounds. It is typically associated with insulin resistance, which in turn leads to diabetes. It is associated with heart disease, with hypertension, cancers, and you name it. Diet is not a panacea. If we will be able magically establish a perfect mix of nutritional ingredients and make sure that everybody consumes exactly as prescribed, we will still see heart disease, hypertension, kidney disease, diabetes, because there is another component, a genetic component to all of this. But when there is a genetic predisposition and a poor diet and low activity, this is a very fertile ground to any disease to spread, take hold, and very hard to eradicate. We are clearly informed at this point about at least one important issue that majority of the patients with COVID-19 are minorities, up to 80% in New York. Therefore, areas where there are less minorities, such as Staten Island, there is much less cases and 
much less deaths because Staten Island has only 7% of minorities versus Queens near 50% of minorities. And we know very well, we have mental picture that many of them are not in a great shape, let's put it mildly, and live in crowded conditions and so on. Therefore, there is no diet I can recommend which will save the world from this infection or from any other disease. But we as a population should come to our senses and get our act together. Otherwise, we'll be in this position on a regular basis when infection or other disaster comes and we have to be preoccupied of saving people who are were not helping themselves, who were setting up themselves for the disaster. And I'm not saying that it's always their fault. Absolutely not. There are definitely genetic conditions and social conditions which are conducive to development of obesity and other diseases. But one needs to make an effort. Whether or not we come to an ideal opening of the country, whichever way that may be, whether it's slowly, maturely, whether it's Let's open it up right away, varying opinions on that. Let's try to look into the future a little bit and see where people will be three months from now, six months from now on this particular topic and what you can foresee. Uh, I know that it's been said that we're going to have another pandemic in the fall, COVID-19 pandemic, and that also we may want to stay closed more or longer. I would love to sort of see if you can predict the future, Dr. Y, a little bit on this one. (laughs) The short answer, I cannot predict the future, but I think we'll have a moment of reckoning. It will be a very rude awakening to the system with 30 million unemployed and so on, which is actually more than 30, approximately 30% of a labor force in the U.S. That would be a, a very difficult awakening for uh, administrators, for politicians, and for the citizens who will find that the restaurant is not opening, the small business is not opening, which been employing a dozen people, let's say, they will have no way to go. In terms of upstick of epidemic, a second wave of epidemic, it is possible. We do not know yet how this virus will behave. It is very possible that this virus will be of the same character as common flu, which returns in waves twice a year. We know that very well, fall and spring, are always a flu season. And if that will be that way, let it be, because we are not able to prevent that from happening other than we can prevent new epidemic reaching or new outbreak reaching significant scale by teaching and enforcing policies such as sick persons should be staying at home, should be isolated from everybody else, even in a household, if it's possible. It's not always possible. But that lesson must be learned. Children should not be sent to school when they're coughing and sneezing. That lesson must be learned. Then whatever infection, whatever wave of epidemic, one or another will come. It will be quickly contained without any measures, provided that this elementary ABC of epidemiology will be enforced, by the way, including contact tracing, which currently is non-existent. None of the patients I dealt directly or peripherally in the last two months had any formal way of contact tracing. Doctors did not even ask beyond who is at home, wife and four children. Okay, do we force them to get tested? No. Do we require them to get tested? No. Therefore, whatever future holds, I would hope that our administrators and politicians will learn the lesson and will not 
resort to any extreme measures in the future. So, so I, I, there is one other component although to this, which is gaining steam in the last week. Now we almost must become conspiracists because what we're hearing and reading now in the news is spelling out exactly what we thought and talked about four to six weeks ago about that article in Nature, about how irresponsible that was, how that virus similar to current virus. There is, of course, a, a big bias, although I saw that President Trump already pointed finger to the Texas University, to Calverston Laboratory at the Texas University, which was irresponsible in handling this issue back in January. And the investigation, although investigation is directed formally to China, the investigation is already happening at that lab, also in North Carolina, in Boston. All you need to do to understand what was going on is to look at the list of authors. That famous or infamous article in Nature had, I believe, only two Chinese authors and about a dozen at least Americans. And we know who they are, we know who contributed what Chinese brought from Wuhan RNA for that virus. And Americans designed the virus itself. It's in the paper. And what I see now, that paper actually, I think, now an official foundation for the strategy to somehow punish China. But we have to remember that this was unfortunately funded mostly by the U.S. government. And that the week later, after publication of that article, there was a letter to, an, to the editor by many responsible scientists and several Nobel laureates outraged, saying literally, what are you doing, guys? So if we don't learn that lesson, if we will continue opening laboratories, and by the way, there is, again, this is not a conspiracy. I just saw a podcast yesterday from Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has 14 bacteriologic labs opened in the last 10 years where the only source of funding is the U.S. government and the only employees there are Americans. All of them are secret we cannot come close to them. The same is happening in, in Georgia. And this particular Ukrainian journalist was describing specific outbreaks happening just in the last several years in different Ukrainian cities, which were very unusual. There was an Ebola outbreak. There was an outbreak of so-called Crimea-Conga hemorrhagic fever, which is actually closely related to Ebola. It was cholera. It was hepatitis. Same for Georgia, and I'm sure we can find the same information everywhere. Why is this happening? First of all, and the foremost, it's happening because U.S. has a moratorium on doing this on the U.S. soil, which was instituted before the publication of that article in 15, but the article was allowed to proceed because it was grandfathered. Therefore, we must learn the lesson that if there is a gun on a wall at the beginning of the play. That gun is going to fire at some point in the play. If we put all of these labs around and people working there are not perfect, there are no perfect people, there will be an accident, an intentional accident. At the same time, I would say, and I thought about this, that if this is indeed a scenario, which is very likely and seems that our government is pursuing it right now, that somebody at the Wuhan lab got infected incidentally, that is actually a best-case scenario. As long as there will be no reinfection, we will eventually contain this epidemic and, I, and this virus will go away. 
because we'll build herd immunity and transmission of the virus will be impossible if there are nine people immune and one is susceptible in a room. You will have to go to a different room to find somebody who is susceptible there. Understood. I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's Dr. Y podcast. Make sure to visit our website at dry.blog and follow us on all our social media accounts in order to stay up to date on all of the Dr. Y content. Be sure to join us for our next episode of the Dr. Y podcast coming soon.